Welcome to Coach House Talks. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. You have had enough in the past of evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God, who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. That is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the Spirit. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. It's quite a passage, right? Um, so let's begin. So the last few weeks, um, Becca, Steve and Andy have taken us through submitting and suffering. And today we're going to go through the shoulds and should nots. So Peter starts with a therefore. So what do we read in the Bible? When we read therefore in the Bible, what should we be looking for? What it's there for. Exactly. Yeah, I know it's not rocket science. And, uh, if we look back, we look back to where Andy brought us, where it was all about Jesus' suffering and the fact that we have to focus on God's will for our lives. So today is in two parts, verses 1 to 6, which I'm calling Making Time Count, and 7 to 11, which is Living Like There's No Tomorrow. Or in other words, what, we should, what should we do and how should we do it? So let's talk about time. In our lifetimes, we're going to spend six months of our lives at traffic lights, waiting for them to turn green. Or if you're with Becca, and we don't know why this is the case, it's a lot longer. For some reason, whenever we're in the car together, we sit at every light possible. We spend eight months of our year, uh, eight months of our lives reading junk mail. When I read that, I was like, not this boy. I go, in the bin. Lost a few bills that way, so that's a bit of a problem. And then we also spend five years of our lives queuing. Although some people on the European continent probably think us Brits queue a little bit more than five years. And definitely Mel and I in lockdown one when we were queuing in Asda for buying food for everyone. I think I spent five years just in one day. Now time is something we're aware of. It's something we count. We have these little things on our wrists that so that we can be on time. And everybody also appreciates it when the pastor finishes on time. Or as Ben said yesterday, starts on time. So time, 
We measure it in seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, and they all combine to make a year. And on average, we're going to have 81 of them. Now, there's 365 days in a year, or to be more exact, 365 days, 5 hours, 49 minutes, and 12 seconds, or, if you're inclined, 8,766 hours, or 525,949 minutes. Don't ask me about the seconds. Ask a mathematician. That'll be Becca later on. And as I said before, we will have an average of 81 of those in our lifespan. I bring that up because one of the key thoughts of Peter in this passage is about time and about time being a gift. And it's an elusive gift. When you're young, you think you've got oodles of it. And then you get a few years under your belt and then you suddenly realise that time moves quickly. Now, Peter mentions time twice in the paragraph because we're to be aware of it. Like Moses, who wrote in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Think of time like a coin, like this one. Yes, it's a massive coin. It's a five shilling for all those who kind of know what that means. Um, Your life is like this coin. That's time. It's the only one you've got. You decide where you're going to spend it. Don't let anybody spend it for you. This is your life, your time for you, for you to spend as you wish. But here's my advice to you. Don't just spend time or waste time, but learn to invest your time. We even have a common phrase, don't we? Killing time. What did you do yesterday? Nothing, it was just killing time. I don't know why I did it as a workman off a shop floor. Anyway, what we mean by that is we're just kind of sort of hanging out, not doing anything really beneficial. But as the philosopher Henry David Theroux said, you can't kill time without injuring eternity. Time matters. Peter also mentions the will of God twice in these first six verses. So the way I read it in is whatever time you've got left, use it to do the will of God. So how are we going to do that? Well, let's look at the four ways of making time count, whatever time we have left. Number one, resist sin. That sounds like something a preacher would say, right? Resist sin. But look at what Peter says. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who is suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, if we look at it, that little phrase, arm yourselves, it's a military phrase. Picture it, if you will, like this soldier here, putting on his gear and getting ready to go into battle. That's the idea of the phrase, arm yourself. However, our preparation is to take place not outwardly, like this guy, as much as inwardly. Notice what it says, arm yourselves with the same mind. We might say, get your head in the game or get your mind in the battle. That's the idea. For us, the battle always, always begins in the realm of the mind. Before it goes anywhere else, it's in our thought life. The writer of Proverbs says this, Proverbs 23 verse 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So what kind of mind do we need? Well, we need a fierce attitude towards sin. We can never get used to it. We can never grow comfortable with it. We need a fierce attitude towards sin, or as Paul puts it in Romans 6, 
Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. If we don't make time to battle sin, sin will take time away from our lives. We should resist sin, not only because of what it does to us, we should hate sin and resist it because of what it did to Jesus. It killed him. Notice what it says. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. When we look at the cross, and this is the time of year where we head to Good Friday and then Easter, and we're contemplating the cross and all that Jesus did for us. When I look at the cross, I'm looking at what my sin did to my saviour. I need to arm myself with the same mind that Jesus did. But what mind did Jesus have? Well, when Jesus came to earth, he had a militant attitude towards sin, as proven by his steadfast movement toward the cross. He came to deal with sin. Full stop, done, enough. He came to die on a cross. Now for us, if there ever was a battle worth fighting, it's this one. If ever there was a fight that you need to be engaged in, it's this one. You've heard it said before, choose your battles carefully. Well, here's a battle you need to fight and you need to win. You need to win more of these battles than lose them. As God spoke to Cain, he said, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you. You've got to master it. James in the New Testament says, resist the devil. Jesus to the 12 apostles, pray that you enter not into temptation. And then he taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. We've got to fight it. We've got to resist it. We've got to push it away and we've got to win the battle. Now that's the first point. And if the first was negative, this one's positive. Here's the second, live in God's will. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, this is verse two, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. Now Peter gets right to the heart of it, and I, uh, heart of what you and I will do the rest of our time. Let me put it to you this way. The best of your time is when you use the rest of your time to invest your time in doing the will of God. Let's just read it again. The best of your time is when you use the rest of your time to invest your time in doing the will of God. Let God's will be your lifelong pursuit. To quote what Jesus himself said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Did you know that the will of God for your life is the most important and exciting thing about your life? Somebody once said there are two important days in a person's life. The day you are born, number one, of course. And then number two, the day you find out what you were born for. So what does God want out of my life? Discover that and make that your pursuit, your ambition. Now, let me just throw out a little warning here. A lot of times when you say the words, find the will of God for your life, we Christians think that you discover God's will by sort of sitting in the corner and waiting for some divine inspiration. But it's not always the case. So don't expect it that way. And let me tell you a bit of a story about this. So, a farmer who thought he should be an evangelist. He was working his field one day. He sat down by the side of a tree. 
He's looking up the cloud or looking up at the clouds and he saw the clouds form two letters, a P and a C. He's like, preach Christ. That's it. It's a sign. God's given me a sign. So he sold his farm, of course, and became an evangelist. The problem is he wasn't a great speaker. So he goes one day to a town and he's preaching and the whole town come out to hear him. And it's pretty bad. Afterwards, one of his buddies comes up, put his arms around and said, dude, do you think that perhaps God was telling you that PC means plant corn? You see, we've got to be careful that you don't make the will of God so mystical because you might be doing just that, preaching when you're supposed to be planting and planting when you ought to be preaching. Simply put, just track his will over your own. Make it your ambition to discover what that is and let that happen naturally. Because it will, but it'll happen supernaturally, naturally. So that's the first two. Here's the third. Abandon your past. In other words, come up to a point in your life, and maybe today will be that point, where you look back and you say, enough is enough. That stuff is gone. That's the old me. That's the old lifestyle. Let's have a look at verse 3. We need to abandon all of the things on this list. They're not good for you. They're not the will of God for you. They're not what's best for you. Remember, the best of your time is when you use the rest of your time to invest your time in doing the will of God. I could uncover the meaning of all these single words, but I think it's pretty straightforward. It's simply saying we've all wasted enough time doing bad stuff. I looked at this list and I thought, you know what? I know people who did these for a living. This was their nine to five. They were exhaustive in their sin. But I also know some of those sinners were interrupted by radical salvation. And when they were, they all said the same thing. Enough. I'm done. Enough. Turning point time. I've had enough of the past. Whether it was 20 years or one day, enough. Were you an alcoholic? Enough. Were you a pornographer? Enough. Were you an angry person? Enough. Were you a church-going, Bible-carrying hypocrite? Enough. To make time count, count your past as past. Over. <clears throat> Done. Enough. So resist sin, chase God's will, and leave your past. Those are the first three things about making time count. The last one, reach the lost. Now, listen up. Just because somebody goes, well, I'm not good at that evangelism stuff, if you want to add some spark and zing into your life, tell someone about your faith. Do it. Just try it. And just see if it wasn't exhilarating, frightening perhaps. Because if you don't evangelize, you'll fossilize. Verse 4 says this. Of course, your former friends, and by that it means your old friends in the world, are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. Listen. Unsaved people do not understand when God changes a life. They don't get it. Your old friends, they don't get you. Unsaved family members, they may be polite to you, but they just don't get it. They think it's strange. What they don't think is strange, though, is when people wreck their bodies with drugs. When they don't think it's strange, when people wreck their homes with unfaithfulness and immorality. What they don't think is strange is when people wreck their jobs because they have hangovers. But they do think it's strange when the drunk becomes sober, when the impure becomes pure. They think it's strange when you buy a Bible, you go to church, and you want to hang out with Christians. 
Paul shared his testimony before a Roman governor, talked about how God changed his life and the resurrection gave him hope and life. And Festus stood up and went, Paul, you are out of your mind. If Paul would have said, I got absolutely hammered last night, good on you, might have been Festus's reply. But Paul said, I'm a, strange, I'm a changed man. And Festus thought it was strange. Peter says, goes on to say in verse 5, they may be judging you right now, but God will judge them one day. And then in verse 6, he reminds his readers of those who are dead, who have been martyred for their faith. They were falsely judged by, by men, they were persecuted, and they were killed for their faith. And at the time of the writing of Peter, they were dead. But they were alive before God, getting their reward. So don't just spend your time invest your time make time count this hour might make all the difference this time could make all the difference in eternity you can't kill time without injuring eternity you have a coin it's your life you're making the decision of how you're going to spend it and whatever choice you make now determines the outcome in eternity what are you going to invest this in funny when it comes to decisions like that and people actually think well if i were to give jesus christ my life you know what will my friends think well if they're really your friends they're going to want the best for you and this is the best they may not understand it they may speak evil of you if you do it but you will have a chance to see, you will give them a chance to see in your life that you've got the best and they also will get the best so here's my question how would you live if you had no tomorrow? If no tomorrows were guaranteed you, what things would you change? How would you live in the light of that? Whether you have one tomorrow left or thousands of tomorrows left, how should you live? Well, there's three things that Peter says because the end is near. Pray harder, love deeper and serve smarter. So let's have a look at praying harder in verse 7. The end of the world is coming soon. Just for another clarification. He didn't say, since we are here at the end. He says, it's near. Be intentional, purposeful, and self-controlled so that you can be given to prayer. That sound familiar? Think of Peter. And the last time Jesus said those words to Peter, they were in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Lord brought Peter, James, and John into the garden. And he said something to the effect of, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. Watch with me. So Jesus goes away, he prays, comes back and he finds them. Well, are they watching? They are, but they're watching the inside of their eyelids because they're absolutely fast asleep. And so then Jesus says to them, what? Couldn't you watch with me one hour? And he urges them, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. One source says the average Christian prays just 45 seconds a day. And that's usually over dinner or lunch if you're a southerner. Another source unrelated to the first says the average Christian's total time spent in a year praying is just six hours. Now the same source goes on to describe other activities. Uh, hobbies and shopping, 90 hours. Sporting activities, 100 hours. Holiday, 120 hours. And prayer, just six hours. And what Peter seems to be saying, if I'm reading it accurately, is this. 
as your tomorrows become fewer, you should pray harder. So that's the first one. What's the second one? Love deeper. Wouldn't you agree that love is the identification mark of the Christian? It's our birthmark. It identifies that you belong to Christ. That's what Jesus said. They'll know you're my disciples because you love each other. But look at the words in verse 8. It says fervent in some translations. Also, others say love deeply. So I've just said love deeper. It's deeper love. You will deeper love each other. The word fervent literally means strenuously. It's a word that in ancient times described a horse at full gallop. That horse was stretching and straining its muscles. When you love people, give it all you've got. When you love people, hold nothing back in your love for them. Love people like you're trying to win the Love Olympics. Now you'll notice in our text, there's two aspects of this love that Peter talks about. First is the love that covers, then the love that recovers. There's covering love and recovering love. Covering love is in verse 8. Above all things have fervent love for one another. Now watch, he's quoting a text, love will cover a multitude of sins. He's quoting Proverbs 10, which says, hatred stirs up strife, but love will cover all sins. When somebody wrongs you, and you probably think of somebody right now, you've got to love them. When somebody wrongs you, you have two choices that you can make. Number one, you can cover it up and forgive. And number two, you can expose what that person has done. This kind of love will not air dirty laundry. This kind of love does not want to expose weaknesses or cause humiliation. This kind of love seeks to handle things privately, discreetly, before it ever goes public. And Jesus teaches us this in Matthew 18. You go to that person one-on-one -on -one and you tell this person their sin. And you tell it privately. If they don't listen, you take somebody else with you. Just just another person. If they don't listen, then you widen the circle. There's a time to go public, but this kind of love is protective. It stretches out in order to cover. I know some people that take pride in uncovering, not covering. They feel so righteous that they're the whistleblower, that they're uncovering sin. And it goes a little bit like this. I'm the gospel Gestapo. It's my calling in life I'm the great sin sniffer and I smell it around here and I'm going to find it eventually. You know the type. This is covering love. It seeks to cover. Second type of love is recovering love. Verse nine, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a New Testament word that literally means loving the stranger. Hospital comes from that word where you'd set up a system to treat people. You may or may not know them, but you're hospitable to them. Love the stranger. Now here's why this was vital in the early church. In the early church, they met in homes. They didn't have church buildings like this one. And the believers who had their homes were also confronted with a particular situation where preachers or evangelists who would travel from place to place and needed a place to stay. There was no Hilton Hotels or any of that, and inns back in those days were anything but a holiday, and certainly not like this place. So because of that, 
you'd open up your home for them. You'd let them stay with you. You may not know them, but you were kind to them. That's hospitality. That's what the original context means. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Show love to the stranger. Go out of your way to help them recover. Okay, now I want, to take, I want you to take a little test in your mind. How fervent is your love? Remember the words, stretches out, strains. Give it all you've got. You're trying to win a gold medal. How fervent is it? Beginning your marriage or your closest relationship and widen the circle out to your family, your parents, your children, your friends, your church. You know what grumbling means? It's the Greek word gongizmos. And it sounds like grumbling, doesn't it? Gongizmos. It means to mumble under your breath. So you can have the right action, but you can also have the wrong attitude. You can all do the right stuff, but the heart isn't in it. Honestly, I believe one of the biggest diseases today is lovelessness. It's the incredible, incredible amount of people, maybe some here right now, who feel unloved and uncared for. And that should just never be a thing when there's Christians about. And here's why. Romans chapter 5. God has poured out his love into our hearts. Now, if God's pouring out his love into our hearts, that means there's an unlimited capacity. If he's doing the pouring and he has the love and he's pouring it into our hearts, just picture God with a big love bucket pouring into your life, we have an unlimited capacity. Because the love of God is poured out in our hearts. And if the love of God is poured out into your heart, that means no one in your circle or my circle should ever be love-starved. Because he's pouring it and he keeps on pouring it. So pray harder, love deeper, and finally, serve smarter. The reason we serve is to give God, God the glory, which seems to me to infer that if you're not involved in sharing the gift of God has given you, God is not getting as much glory as he could. Isn't that a thought? That you could actually be hindering the display of God's glory by not getting involved in sharing yourself with somebody else. Something else I'd like you to notice in verse 10. What kind of grace is it? What does it say? In some translations, it says manifold. It's the manifold grace of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the word manifold, I think of a car mechanic, you know, exhaust manifold or whatever else. You know, I'm, I'm not a car guy, so I don't know. But manifold is actually a word that means many colored. Now, listen to Peter's description again. He's painting a picture. Many colored grace of God. It was used to describe a garment that had many colours. Beautiful, flowery, gorgeous, brightly coloured. The grace of God is like this. If you shine the grace of God through one person, you might get blue. You shine the same grace of God through another person, you might get green or yellow or purple. Or with someone, you might also get polka dots. They're normally the people who've got flair. It's who they are. It's the manifold grace of God. God's grace is not monotone. It's not monochromatic. It has different displays. So everyone has a gift. Everyone should share that gift. 
so that God's manifold, many-coloured grace shines through and we go, wow, what a beautiful array. So as we come into land, what is it that 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11 shows us? It's this. We need to resist sin. We need to chase God's will. We need to leave our pasts and we need to reach the lost. And we're going to do that by loving deeper, praying harder and serving smarter. Amen. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.